Welcome back to another Green Section podcast episode. I'm your host, Adam Miller, USGA agronomist and director of the Green Section Education Program. On this episode, Matt and I talk a lot about his research at Rutgers. We touch on goosegrass control, pre-emergent application timing with respect to what happened with winter injury, um, and get into some other weed issues, native area management, and thinking about weed control and density management. And then finally, hit on the Resist Pole project that's going on with Matt and a number of other universities. Hope you enjoy this episode. Matt, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, I was first off, I was impressed you keep office hours till about 6 p.m. So that's. Uh, you know, a great a great way to uh, tap into someone and, and get you on our podcast when we have a lot of flexibility like that. So thanks for that to start with. No doubt winter injury is a hot topic, especially where you are in New Jersey. Uh, it's really been something that we've seen throughout the Northeast. And recovery mode focuses on, in most cases, seeding, sometimes sodding. But I wanted to see if you had anything that superintendents should keep in mind, you know, with respect to pre-emergent herbicides, or other kind of early season applications that are going to start to go out. Maybe not so much on greens. We don't see those herbicide applications made, but other areas of the course, uh, you know, that superintendents can use herbicides, but they don't want to set back recovery, obviously. So any thoughts there? In terms of winter injury, I think one thing to figure out is whether the injury is a little more superficial and maybe confined to the foliage and hasn't actually killed off the crowns of the plant, you know, those growing points. If that's the case... You know, you may have an answer there in a couple of weeks and, you, you know, if all is well, you may be able to proceed with your normal program. But if to the point where you've lost plants, then you definitely need to reconsider your pre-emergence herbicides, especially if you're growing annual bluegrass or what you expect to recover is going to be annual bluegrass, because that's all going to have to come from seed. So you're really going to have to avoid any of your standard pre-emergence herbicides because they're all going to inhibit that recovery from seed. If it's in a situation where... Maybe you lost some annual bluegrass, but the bentgrass is mixed pretty well with it. Then I would just avoid the herbicides that affect rooting, that affect the root pruners, we call them, or the mitotic inhibitors. So those would be things like dithiopure, which is dimension, or barricade, which is prodiamine, or pendimethylin, which is pendulum, um, and opt for something like... Really, the only other option we have in cool season turf grass is oxidizon, which is not immensely widespread in terms of its use, but it is an option. Um, it does not affect the grass's ability to root, so it is a shoot inhibitor. That one is gaining traction a little bit for goosegrass control, but yeah, you do have to be careful, and probably the most practical thing is just going to be to make sure you have post-emergence options ready for uh, control and getting those out whenever it's still, the, the, the plants are small, you know, in June or July instead of waiting until August. So I think a lot of it might be designing a good post-emergence herbicide program and knowing what weeds you have a history of on the site, what herbicides are effective, um, and most importantly, with these summer annual weeds that we want to be preventing with our pre-emergence, when do I need to be applying these things so that they can still work? Especially in bentgrass, where we're really limited in terms of how much product we can apply at, and be safe to the bentgrass. Um, so that's, that's the big thing, is not waiting uh, until the plants are you know, the size of a dinner plate before we make the application. Really helpful stuff right off the bat. Thanks, Matt. That's awesome. You know, you touched on 
oxidiazone, and that kind of leads me into my second question, which is goosegrass, and it seems like it's topping the list in terms of difficult weeds to control. Uh, no doubt we could have a whole episode on just goosegrass control. You've done a lot of work documenting goosegrass resistance to dithiopyr in New Jersey, and, you know, suspected adds to the problem of controlling, you know, this weed. So how concerned are you with herbicide resistance in goosegrass? Yeah, I'd say very concerned in terms of controlling it in cool season turf grass in the Northeast. Whenever I got here in 2016, I guess, you know, 2017 was kind of the first field season I had. And it became apparent from talking to superintendents that POA, yeah, that's an issue, but it's always going to be an issue. And, and really the emerging issue or one that had already emerged as problematic was goosegrass, become more problematic. So we did some work in 2017. I didn't initially wanted to suspect something other than resistance. You know, we just needed to sort of change our timings of our pre-emergence herbicides, look at a couple of other things. But it became apparent at a couple of the places where we did the work that we may have a, a resistance situation. We figured out, you know, we kind of got to the bottom of that. And that was just at two golf courses where we did that work. And yeah, we figured out that it was resistant to the thiopure which is a little concerning given the popularity of that herbicide in the Northeast. Um, there's a particular mutation that goosegrass, basically we selected for it. And I think the question now is how prevalent is this? You know, is it just, you know, a couple of places randomly had it. And, you know, a lot of times we do work at courses that have weed control issues. So how, how widespread is this? Some more sampling in 20. 19 and 2020 has uh, gotten me more concerned to the point that now we, uh, we have a graduate student working on the issue and trying to understand within New Jersey specifically, we've got about 25 or so populations, how many of them have a resistance issue. I think it's a fairly significant problem for many golf courses in the region, uh, but we're still working to get to the bottom of that. So 25 locations that you're testing this year for resistance issues? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're screening them in the lab for the mutation and then also doing some dose response work in the greenhouse to determine that they have that they are resistant to the herbicide. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, feel free to correct me here. Because a lot of times you know the same pre-emergent application was used and historically to target both goosegrass and crabgrass. Do we think that's sort of the underlying root behind some of the resistance issues? Yeah, for sure. I think so. I mean, products that we use here are primarily dithiopure, you know, prodiamine, pendimethalin. Those, I think we were primarily using for crabgrass. I mean, if you look historically, there has always been some goosegrass around, but I think we've designed these programs around crabgrass and not goosegrass. And now we have to just shift our thinking and design our programs, you know, with goosegrass taken into account. They've been doing this for a longer period of time in the Southeast. Sort of the same story has played out down there. You know, they're probably ahead of us in terms of resistance and they've got slightly different herbicides that are popular. So it's a little bit of a different story, but you know, the end result is always kind of the same. We're putting a lot of pressure on these herbicides in a lot of cases. And when you continue to put pressure on the herbicide year after year, certain weeds like goosegrass seem more prone to developing this resistance than, say, crabgrass, right? I mean, most of the, the herbicides that we've evaluated that goosegrass has resistance to, they've been used for a very long period of time on crabgrass, and they're still effective. So there's certain things about goosegrass that it can select for these mutations. And, and so that makes it more problematic when we're planning. And I think also as we rotate to different chemistries for post-emergence herbicides, we need to be mindful of not having the same story play out as it is now with the pre-emergence herbicides. So if a superintendent's 
really their their primary concern is goosegrass over crabgrass. How should they adjust their strategy to improve control? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think what we've been finding is rotating to oxidizon or not just rotating, but incorporating that into the pre-emergence herbicide program. If you've got a severe infestation, you're using that for several years until you get that seed bank under control, and then potentially you could rotate away from that oxidizon and you know, go to post-emergence herbicides. But I think the thing that needs to be seriously considered is oxidizon. It's a very effective herbicide for goosegrass, and in the case of resistance to dimension, thiopyr, proteamine, oxidizon has a different mode of action. In the cases of resistance that we've identified so far, oxidizon is, is extremely effective and is not affected by the mechanism that's causing the problem. It's a little bit different to use oxidizon. I think that's one thing to keep in mind, and usually you're you know, fellow superintendents are going to be a great source resource for that, other folks in the industry. But the key is it needs to be applied as a granular to dry turf. That's the, the biggest thing to know. Yeah, that part is definitely, I've talked to a number of superintendents that have used it for the first time. And how dry is dry turf? You know, that, that time of year with the, the timing, it could be pretty humid and might take a while for the leaves to dry. So it's a you know, tricky application. And oxidizone, not great on crabgrass, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, a lot of times too, it seems like the crabgrass is more of a problem in the rough areas and maybe the goosegrass is more of a problem in the fairways. You have to know your course, but oxidizon is not as strong on crabgrass as it is on goosegrass and, and, and vice versa for the dithiopyr. Even in cases where you don't have resistance, the dithiopyr is always going to be stronger on crabgrass than it is on goosegrass. So those are things to keep in mind. You may not want to abandon one completely. One of the things we've been looking at that I think looks like a good approach, but I'd like to see some more years of data, but is reducing the rate of dithiopyr and adding the, the oxidizon into the program. We seem to get good control of both crabgrass and goosegrass in that situation. So it'd be nice if there were some products that incorporated both of those onto the same prill. My understanding right now is those products are not widely available. So it may be two separate applications that have to be made, unfortunately. But there is, again, an opportunity to reduce that dithiopyr rate if you're using oxidizon, or maybe you target uh, a full rate of dithiopyr for the roughs and then incorporate the oxidizon just where you've got a history of goosegrass problems. You know, the, the conditions of the soil or whatever are conducive to goosegrass, you know, target your oxidizon there. And how about application timing between your traditional crabgrass pre-emerge that would go, you know, 55 degrees soil temperatures. What what do you see in terms of goosegrass emergence and when should that material be going out? It's interesting. You know, I think a lot of times that dithiopyr, one of the advantages of it is we can control crabgrass that's already emerged. So I think a lot of dithiopyr applications are actually made after crabgrass emergence. It depends on your, you know, what you've done in the past. Here in New Jersey, it's April. In the next couple of weeks, we're probably going, we can expect crabgrass emergence. Soil temperatures get to 55 degrees for a few days. With the goosegrass, from the work we've done, the soil temperature needs to be hitting uh, 65 degrees at least for a few days, probably more like peaking at 70 before the goosegrass emerges. You want your applications to go out a little bit before that. So it depends on the year. You know, in the Northeast, a lot of times we're thinking late April, early May for those pre-emergence goosegrass applications. But I think it's a common, you know, misconception that it doesn't germinate until midsummer because we don't really see it until like 4th of July or after. That's when you start really noticing it. But what is interesting is in the field is we see these seedlings emerge 
and they don't really grow all that quickly until we get really really warm soils and until the soils get to you know 75 80 degrees and we get to midsummer so it emerges a lot earlier than you think i guess is the point and trying to get those applications out when we start to see that soil temperature hit you know 65 degrees consistently in the middle of the day at, at two inches is a good is a good practice well, we mentioned it earlier. We could do a whole episode on, on just goosegrass, and we've already probably covered 10 minutes. So let's move into another weed that it seems like we're we're experiencing more of, but that's Japanese stiltgrass. And it certainly found a niche here, you know, germinating early before crabgrass, and it seems like it's it can just spread so quickly in a home lawn or rough situation. Any tips for tackling stiltgrass? Yeah, I think you pointed at it there. The early emergence is the key. A lot of times our crabgrass pre-emergence aren't out whenever the still grass emerges. It was actually probably about two weeks ago we first noticed it emerge in New Jersey, and that would have been mid-March, so probably about a month before most of us have even thought about applying a pre-emergence herbicide. So we've done a little bit of work and found that, you know, essentially if you, as you'd expect, if you apply your pre-emergence too late, then, uh, you know, you're out of luck. So then it shifts to post-emergence herbicides I think it's easier said than done to shift, you know, move your pre-emergence herbicide application up. That can come with its own challenges of running out of residual at the other end of it. I think a lot of times where we see it on golf courses is probably in the naturalized areas. And in that case, one strategy is to make a pre-emergence application in the fall and then another one in the springtime. And that can help, you know, the residual that's in the soil in the fall will cover you for that that springtime. Post-emergence, it gets a little bit more difficult. Um, there's not as much work available. Sean Askew of Virginia Tech has done some work and that has essentially found that a claim is very effective. And a claim is actually the only product labeled for post-emergence Japanese stiltgrass control. So it kind of works out, but it, you know, a claim, it needs to be applied while the plants are still relatively young. So probably before mid-July, there's a lot that still needs to be worked out there. I think just not waiting till the end of the summer is key. We don't really have good timing on exactly when the pre-emergence herbicides need to go out either. Like I said, I saw it come up in early March, but we have not done the work to put a soil temperature or any kind of more information behind that. But it seems like it, it again, it comes up very early every year. So it's probably, you know, there's going to be a lot of different strategies out there to manage it. And I, again, I think most mostly problematic probably in those native areas, but we have seen you know, instances of it. It's not thought to be a grass that does well under frequent mowing, but it seems like there may be biotypes that have sort of moved out of that typical habitat of a forest understory where there's no mowing to these full sun areas with, with frequent mowing. So that's another thing we need to, to learn more about is what's going on there. Are they different biotypes and you know, why are we seeing it in these rough areas? So I, I would be very surprised if we ever saw it in a fair way though. Um, another one to keep in mind, I guess, on that note, just real quick is that's common in these naturalized areas is joint head arthraxin or small carpet grass. So it's a little, it's, it's moving kind of up through Virginia and into the greater Philadelphia area and even into New Jersey in that area. So that's just another one seeing it a lot in pastures and also naturalized areas on golf courses, another annual weed that seems to be problematic. And I don't think we have a lot of answers on why, but that one's not in moving into fairways, hopefully. Uh, no, I've never even seen that in a rough area. So the still grass is interesting because we do see it in lawns and roughs and that sort of thing. And the arthraxin is kind of a, we've got, we've got all these new weeds that keep coming in. So that's probably the next one on the list for the, the naturalized areas if you haven't seen it already. That's an annual weed. So it's, you know, you can use the pre-emergence herbicides. You know, another, another weed that seems to be moving, you know, more north is false green kalinga. 
definitely been a tough one to control once it takes hold. So any suggestions for products, timing, uh, you know, with some new herbicide combinations, things like that for false green Kalinga? Yeah. Um, so false green Kalinga, that's one, you know, we just talked about still grass that really, it'll do okay in roughs, but you're probably not going to see it in the fairways. The Kalinga, they've found that it actually really likes those low mowing heights and you know, it's pretty happy in a, a two or three or four inches in a rough, but it seems to compete very well, even in collars. Occasionally, I've seen it on putting greens, definitely fairways, definitely likes the, the wetter areas of the golf course. I think we're still trying to understand a little bit more about why it's competitive. I've got a student now doing some work, and he's essentially finding that, you know, while over short distances, it does spread via the rhizomes. The seed is definitely a factor. Obviously, you know, it's, it's spreading so widely. The seed is not as competitive as, as crabgrass, but it is competitive. So we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking long-term, because what we found is, you know, we came up with some good recommendations for timings and different products and things that seem to work fairly well for post-emergence control. But what would happen is, you know, a couple years later, the population would come back. What we're controlling with the post-emergence herbicides is the rhizomes and what it would come back from, presumably, was the seed. So that's a factor as well. So it's sort of got a two-pronged approach, I guess, to invading. I guess if we're talking about products, just keep in mind it's a sedge family weed. So a lot of the things we can use for nut sedge control are going to be effective here as well. The nice thing about it compared to nut sedge is that it does not have the tubers underground. So the big problem with nut sedge is, you know, one plant can produce hundreds of tubers and, and then, you know, you've, you're dealing with these tubers for years and, you know, they can emerge at different times and they're several inches underground. Kalinga forms a mat of rhizomes, but it stays relatively close to the surface. So it actually could be removed with a sod cutter. Rhizomes don't even go as deep as Bermuda grass. Or the, the network is not as extensive. So that's an option, although effective, but labor intensive. But for small areas, I think it's good, you know, around putting greens, especially where it, you know, I've seen it in the collar and you can cut it right out. Herbicide wise, we've found that Solero or Amazosulfuron, which is still fairly new, is extremely effective. One or two applications of that, again, extremely effective. So that's a really nice product. Halosulfuron is also effective. That one is, again, slightly less effective than the Solero, the Amazosulfuron, but both of those have a similar mode of action. Both of those you want to apply with a non-ionic surfactant. Halosulfuron, you're definitely going to want to use the highest labeled rate, which is one and a third ounces to the acre. The Solero, we found not a huge difference between the lowest rate of 8 ounces per acre and the highest rate of 14. So there's considerable you know, economics you could think about there. I still think no matter what, you want to budget for two applications for a program for post-emergence control. But definitely with Halosulfuron, and, and I think even budgeting for two applications with the Solero as well. Um, dismiss is a, a different mode of action. So we're talking about rotations. With these weeds, we really only have two modes of action. So we talk about resistance management like we did with the goosegrass. You know, it would be a good idea to preserve the two modes of action we have and, and rotate between them, between years. So Dismiss NXT is the, one of the brand names. Sulfentrazone-based products are effective. Again, the key is the pr it needs to be predominantly sulfentrazone or needs to be delivering a significant amount, up around a quarter pound or so of sulfentrazone um, or an eighth of a pound. So there's a lot of products that contain a little bit of sulfentrazone, but those aren't going to be effective. Sulfentrazone especially in rates that we can use in creeping bentgrass, has been effective where you've got a good mixture of bentgrass and the Kalinga. If you've got 
you know, a stand of Kalinga that's essentially choked out the desirable turf grass. It has been a, uh, less effective than the other two options I just mentioned. I guess that sort of rounds it out with, with, with herbicides. I, I think product selection is important, but also how's that turf going to compete after that application is really important. So that kind of leads into my point about timing. Now, this is a, a, a summer perennial weed. So we're targeting, we've done work targeting uh, spring applications. So we're talking mid to late May into mid June. So after that Kalinga has emerged from dormancy, we make those applications that has worked well. And I think for a lot of situations that that's not a bad strategy. Where I don't like that as a strategy is where the, the Kalinga has choked out the desirable turf grass. This is especially common in rough areas. And if you were to go in and control that Kalinga at that time, then we're looking at bare soil going into summer, and that's not a good situation for either Kalinga reemergence or controlling other weeds. So we, we don't want to have big voids in the canopy. So we've done work looking at early September applications as well. Those were somewhat effective. The best strategy that we've kind of put together is where, this would be more for rough areas, but we've done some work where we looked at mid-August applications and then seeded three weeks later. And by incorporating that cultural practice of seeding, we got more control. Seeding alone, herbicide alone, seeding plus herbicide was much better. And in that case, too, product selection becomes a little bit less important. And the halosulfuron and the amazosulfuron did very well in that research. So I just think, you know, knowing your situation and if you need to wait till there's an opportunity to incorporate some seeding, then do it in the fall. If you've got a good mix, you know, especially bent grass and, and the Kalinga seem to mix fairly well in some cases and in that case you know making that application mid-spring that should be a good strategy waiting for things is is a really tough one with whether it's any of the sedges really when you when you consider how fast that they grow yeah during summer so one of the common situations that i see superintendents running into is they've got some infestation of whether it's kalinga or nutsedge you know on bunker banks especially south-facing bunker banks and it's growing double the rate of the rest of the grasses and it's mid-july it's hot like What's the safety with the products out there for, you know, that are labeled for control of the sedges that you just mentioned? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, mid-July is a tough time to be making any herbicide application, and the labels are probably not going to be supportive of an application at that time. Um, I have seen injury from sulfentrazone at higher rates in midsummer, especially on tall fescue. So you want to be careful of that. I've not seen injury issues with the halosulfuron or the amazosulfuron, you know, but we haven't put them under the under the microscope like that in terms of making applications at really high temperatures. So I would say you got to defer to the label on that. But the one that does concern me is the, the, the sulfentrazone active ingredient in the summertime. You'll a lot of times get lesions on the tall fescue that sort of resemble brown patch lesions after an application. So yeah, it's a good point to be careful there. Another one I should mention is is pyramisulfan. We could talk about it a little bit later, but that's a, an active ingredient as well that newly available. I put it in the category with halosulfuron in terms of how effective it is, and it's the same you know ALS inhibitor chemistry there. Where I've seen some supertents have success with those summer applications, it's usually when they've got the labor force to be really patient and kind of wait for their window and then make that application like first thing in the morning during the, the coolest part of the day. But even then, herbicide applications in, in July are, there's usually not a lot of windows for that. 
Yeah, but sometimes that's when you have the time to get it done. And maybe if you've got a good weather window, you can you can go for it. I've never seen any major issues with making those applications, like you say, within that window. I think the biggest thing is with that, if you're going to go with that strategy, which is make sure the operators are calibrated. Usually the errors come from 2 and 3 and 4x applications. Combine that with heat. Then, then you can get into some issues and walking bunker banks and making applications is a job where you it's easy to uh, you know zone out I guess and all of a sudden you know maybe your operators way over applied the product so that's 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 the only thing to keep in mind I think there. You've done a bunch of cool USGA funded work since you you got to Rutgers, especially on weeds and playability of native areas and whether it's native areas, naturalized areas, you know, lots of different names for these spots. But they take a lot of time and money to, you know, kind of get them weed free and wispy, you know, I can find a ball pretty easily and advance it type of look. So can you talk to me a little bit about your research in that native area space? We've got essentially two projects. One is looking at how do we control a problematic weed in those areas. And then the other one is trying to shed a little bit of light on, like you say, how we get that thin and wispy sort of look. And there's a lot of factors going on with the second one. The first one, we're looking at deer tongue grass control, a perennial grass that's problematic to these areas. And a lot of these areas are predominantly fine fescues. So we've been getting out of that work been looking at a couple of different things, but essentially make sure if you've got these perennial grassy weed problems like deer tongue grass or quack grass is another one that you're utilizing herbicides that are going to be effective and really the graminicides like fluazifop, which is Ornamec or Fusilade, or the other one is Cethoxidin, which is one of the trade names is Segment. Those are really effective against a lot of grassy weeds and safe to find fescue. So we're not very familiar with them in turf. These are going to be really harsh on Kentucky bluegrass, perennial ryegrass, tall fescue. So we don't really use them much in cool season turf, but they are effective against a number of grasses. And again, kind of the, the nice thing about the fine fescues is that they're very tolerant. We've been looking at different timings for deer tongue grass control. Haven't found a whole lot in terms of timing. Makes it easier to manage. I think the key is multiple applications with these graminicides and just sticking with it. So especially for quack grass and deer tongue grass, they've got a lot of perennial structures, especially quack grass underground. You know, the cethoxidim, the fluazifop are going to be effective, but it just needs to be a multiple application strategy. The other one that we found that's interesting, and I think we need to be careful with how we recommend it or discuss it, is glyphosate. Hard fescues and sheep's fescues have a pretty decent amount of glyphosate tolerance and so and glyphosate is effective against a lot of different weeds especially quack grass um, and in our work we found that it's effective for deer tongue grass control and it's a little bit tricky to you know we've only been doing a little bit of work so my comfort level and confidence that we won't cause injury to the fine fescue but we've not seen any injury in any of our work um, I know Doug Soldat at Wisconsin did some work a few years ago looking at glyphosate applications in these areas and we haven't seen any injury, so it's something, I think, for spot treatments or that kind of thing. If you know you have predominantly sheeps and hard fescue, that the creeping and the chewings can be a little less tolerant. But uh, sheeps and hard, we've been you know looking at 16 to 32 ounces of the 41% glyphosate solution. Uh, we've not seen any injury issues, and we're getting good control. So that may be something that superintendents could experiment with you know, in a spot treatment scenario. The other thing we've been looking at is the... How do we 
kind of reduce the biomass production and make these areas more playable, that's going to be a bit of a tough nut to crack. And I think one of the main issues is where we look to, where we idealize these areas, you know, it's a lot of it comes from, you know, Long Island, you know, we've got Shinnecock and you look at the soils out there, it's very sandy. So if you thin out that fescue in those areas and you get it, you know, playable, but also you've got the, the seed production, the seed head production to get that wispy look. You can do that in a heavier soil, mineral, heavier clay, clay, more clay loam soil as well. But I think the problem there is the weeds are going to be a lot more competitive in that situation. So we've done some work looking at, you know, some experimental herbicides to really thin these out. That initially we kind of found, well, it works if you don't have weeds. But for example, one year we did it and a bunch of nuts edge exploded up through one of the areas, you know, one of the plots with thinner, thinner grass because... The pre-emergents we put out aren't going to control nuts edge. So there's a little bit of caution there. Um, we've been looking at high rates of tranexapac ethyl, which is primo, and then ethafon, which is proxy, applied once in the springtime. And some of this, uh, Steve McDonald's doing a lot of work in this area as well, and I've definitely talked to him to get ideas for our work. But so far in our thinning work, I guess if you want to call it that, primo, a very high rate of primo, ethafon, applied once right as soon as we start to get the initial inflorescence production, you know, you can see a few of those seed heads starting to pop up. We'll make that application. That's been effective. Again, we've only got one year of data so far. But the nice thing is we've got a little bit of growth suppression through the season and we still got some seed heads. So we're going to look at that again this year. I think there's still a lot to be learned there. But yeah, that's where we're at right now for that. Now that's cool. Those areas are, it seems like they just, they ebb and flow each year and once someone feels like they got a pretty good handle on things, something else intervenes or pops up. It'll be interesting to see the the second year of data with Primo Proxy combo there because reduced density, a little less seed heads, that sounds like something a lot of people would sign up for. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the, the challenge in these areas is we're going to see a lot of weeds because we're, we've removed that mower as a selection pressure to get rid of most of our species. So Yeah, yeah. You're one of the scientists on the Resist Poa project, and I know this thing is really just getting started, but give our audience a little background on it and how it's going so far. My takeaway from your seminar in San Diego, really with all the top weed scientists involved, is that the Southeast just has a ton of herbicide-resistant Poa. Yeah, that's correct. That's what we're finding so far. So we're in year three, I believe, of the project, maybe four. It's uh, an effort led by... Texas A&M University, and there's a large number of weed scientists brought in all the way from Florida, Florida to Oregon to New Jersey. One of the initial efforts of the project was to figure out, okay, how bad is this resistance problem, especially in the southeast? You know, they've got a lot of tools available, a lot of herbicide tools available for annual bluegrass control, especially in Bermuda grass. You know, they can use glyphosate on dormant turf. They, they've got a large number of herbicides that we don't have in the northeast so they've got the selection pressure in place it's been in place for many years and what do you get if you you know exert a heavy selection pressure and and don't rotate what you're doing uh you're going to get resistance so yeah they've identified a lot of resistance there i think it, in some cases it might be even more uh, more of a problem than they imagined the nice thing in the southeast is they've got you know rotational options a lot of times those rotational options are going to be more expensive than what the superintendent was using prior so that it becomes a little bit of a challenge but uh, that's one of the things that the project is trying to address i think 
one of the things that's nice in cool season turf is we have not identified any resistance, primarily because we just don't really have any any herbicides that are effective for poa control. Obviously, some new things on the horizon with poa cure, so that may be changing on the putting surfaces. And I think that's one thing we want to keep in mind when, as poa cure now comes onto the market, so methiazolin, how do we use this carefully so that we don't end up in a similar situation given that on the putting surface, this is our only product that's really functioning as an herbicide. So I think rotating it with other options like the Paclobutrazol program is a is a good option. Using the POA cure to transition away from a POA annua management centric management program is important. So if you get rid of that POA annua, can you do things like you know, use less nitrogen, potentially even reduce irrigation, transition to PGRs like Paclobutrazol or Florimidol that are going to suppress that POA? So it's an, it's an opportunity to kind of turn the tables a little bit for the superintendent and, again, try to manage for the bent grass and specifically manage maybe to suppress that POA with some of those cultural practices, I think, is, is going to be something we probably talk more about. Yeah, POA control on greens is it's multiple episodes in and of itself there. You covered it well. Yeah, but there's been a lot of other outcomes that have come from the project. I mean, primarily it was started as, okay, let's learn about resistance, but I think one of the best things that's come out of it is there's probably more than the, the herbicide work we focused on alternative strategies to control annual bluegrass you know one of the students in my program just got done uh, we kind of dug into this idea that annual bluegrass is requires more phosphorus than creeping bent grass and that's something i think we could dig into a little bit more in field trials but you know that idea has been out there for a long time and there's been some good work to show that, yeah, annual bluegrass is, requires phosphorus more so than bentgrass, but I think exactly how much phosphorus does bentgrass need and w- would give that bentgrass an advantage is there's not a lot of information out there on that. We haven't really identified what that number is, so that was sort of some of his work. There's been a lot of work looking at organic options. Uh, we've been done a lot with Oregon State looking at you know irrigation management, nitrogen management, all that stuff. How does that all kind of intersect and how can we manage annual bluegrass better without herbicides or by complementing herbicides? I think that's a big area that we're going to get a lot out of this project. And it's a collaborative project with a lot of universities, so that's, you know, that's nice. The, the more folks looking at it, the, the better, and it'll be interesting to see all the good stuff that comes from it. Last question before I let you go. So any new chemistries in the works for products that may be on the way that can help superintendents control weeds on their course? I mean, there's two that are have just been released to the marketplace that I think are something to think about. You know, the one we mentioned was Poacure. I guess it's been on the market for a while now, but its availability is becoming more widespread. I think there's been a lot of discussion on it. I don't think we need to cover it a whole lot. You know, it's effective, essentially, and it's a could be an important tool, or for a lot of us, already is an important tool. Another one is, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but it's pyramisulfan. It's Vexus. It's the same mode of action as the halosulfuron or the amazosulfuron. But what's different about it is the formulation. It's a granular formulation. So instead of having to go mix up a backpack and spray it with the Vexus, you can actually just spread it onto dry turf. And it doesn't even have to be watered in within that day. It can be watered in within a couple of days, either by rainfall or irrigation. So I think Nutsedge and Kalinga, or especially Nutsedge, you, you know, you mentioned the bunker banks. It's one of those things where it's you can send crews out and take care of a lot of it, but there's always going to be those little areas that pop up. It's like, well... I should probably should probably take care of that. It comes in a shaker can, it's, you know, maybe something you could put in your cart and have on you. I think that's 
that's the nice thing about it. I think all the work that's been done with Nuts Edge, and we haven't really got great answers for it, but multiple applications over multiple years is going to be important for that Nuts Edge control. And not waiting to make that application after you see it is also critical because it's going to start to produce tubers, you know, just a few, about four weeks after it, you, it emerges out of the ground in May. So every time you drive by that patch of Nuts Edge and don't treat it, well, then you've got more tubers for next year. And that, that problem going to be a problem for years to come. I think that formulation, again, might be more accessible to the superintendent if they are able to get at some of those problem areas, depending on the size of the infestation. There's not a lot new, though. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is we can't be looking to herbicide to herbicides to solve all of our weed problems, and they need to be a part of it, but we need to think about how do we use herbicides to a point and then get off those herbicides more or less and use the, the, the management of the turf, this, those cultural practices, to um, not to rely too much on these herbicides. Really well said, Matt. Really appreciate the time today. This is going to be really valuable podcast for superintendents that are just have questions around weed control, and, and no doubt they're going to improve their management because of all this. So thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the USGA Green Section podcast. Be sure to subscribe, listen, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also keep up with the latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month.